Good morning again. Yesterday was working for Worcester Day. What happened yesterday was 1,100 volunteers who raised $110,000 budget worked on 21 sites throughout the city. Among those volunteers were about 50 people from Journey Church. We were at Grapebrook Valley painting uh, the uh, Youth Activity Center, laying concrete, a variety of tasks. But throughout the city, all this kind of stuff was happening. And it was an idea that began four years ago. An idea that began with two students sitting together in a Holy Cross dorm who had a very simple observation. They observed that there was not enough green space, open recreation area for kids to play in throughout the city. They, they observed that and they started thinking, well, we, what can we do with this? And that idea, that, that observation has caught momentum. The idea to do, the decision to do something has caught momentum. It's spread through the city. It's like a wildfire. The rallying cry yesterday was, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. And that was the cry that brought the whole city together. You had thousands, you had you know, hundreds of students. You had corporate sponsors. You had... Um, Various uh, agencies uh, there. You had churches there. There were, you know, civic leaders all coming together. And again, it began with two college students sitting together in a dorm who saw a need and had the audacity to believe that they could do something about that need. So they did it. Every great movement of God Every great movement of God begins with a burden. It begins with a holy distress, a God-given brokenness in our hearts over what is just not right. And then a prayer-driven burden to do something about it. But a burden is just a burden if there isn't a clear vision and a clear plan to bring about change. What takes people from the point where they are to where they are, from the point where they want change to the point where they believe change is possible and are willing to fight for it? I think it begins with a vision. Well, it begins with a burden, then it begins with a vision, a vision of God and a vision of what the end goal can look like, and then following that begins with a clear plan and process. And we're going to walk through that today. That's what God does for Nehemiah. He gives Nehemiah a holy distress about the condition of Jerusalem, a vision of who God is, and a vision of what Jerusalem can be, and then the beginnings of a plan to make it so. He puts it in Nehemiah's heart. We're told in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 12, he gives Nehemiah a plan for what to do for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah sets out for Jerusalem, 900-mile journey, about three months to go. And he gets gets into Jerusalem, and for three days he's quiet. We're not told what he does. We're only told that that he didn't tell anyone what God had put on his heart to do. 
Finally, on the night of the third day, Nehemiah goes on a recon mission. Why? It's because although he's heard about the condition of Jerusalem and although he's been in Jerusalem for three days and kind of seen some of it as he's kind of probably walked through the city, he hasn't seen it up close and personal. So he takes this recon mission on the third night and he just goes through the city, the different areas of the city wall, and he sees what's there. He wants to see the full nature and scope of the problem before him. Why? Because you can't solve a problem until you really know and understand that problem. This is why you've been asked over the last few weeks to take a close and personal look at this neighborhood, to walk, actually walk through the neighborhood and look around prayerfully, asking God, show me what you want me to see. We can't make an impact in this neighborhood if we don't really know this neighborhood. And we can't make an impact in the city as a whole unless we really know our city as a whole. We have to be people who are willing to get up close and personal and see for ourselves. There's some things we can learn from demographic data and from reading newspaper articles or whatever. But until we see for ourselves, it's out there. It's not in here. Until we see for ourselves, we have a vague idea, but not a real idea of what the scope is and what the possible solution might be. We need to be people who get up close and personal and inspect for ourselves. So I invite you again, walk around, walk slow, walk with your eyes open, walk with your prayers. Pay attention. Let's do that together. Nehemiah, after four months of fasting and praying and weeping and mourning, Three months of travel and thinking before God. Three days of observing on-site in Jerusalem. And one night of close inspection of the wall. Finally, after all that, he's ready to talk to the people. He's heard, he's seen firsthand, he's prayed, he's listened to God. He's finally ready to talk. So read with me, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Nehemiah begins by telling them what is, what the situation actually is. He, He begins by saying, you see the trouble we are in. You see the trouble we are in. People do not want to change until they see the situation they're in. 
You can be in a situation and not really see it. You, you can be in a, in, a, in a bad place and not even recognize it's bad if that's all that you've ever seen. So Nehemiah begins to this is our situation. This is our reality. We are in a city that's open and defenseless and broken, and we are in disgrace before the nation surrounding us. And because of that, they hold our God in contempt. They think our God is weak. We are in disgrace. Nehemiah begins by telling them what is because he's trying to stoke in them a fire to rise up. But then he says, come, let us rebuild. He starts with what is and he says, this is what can be. We can rebuild. We can rebuild, and when we rebuild, we will no longer be in disgrace. We will no longer be defenseless. Our God will no longer be in contempt when the nations see what our God has done in and through us. Come on, let us rise up and build. We can do this. We can bring change. People don't try to change. They don't try to change their situation until they believe that change is possible and that that change leads them to a preferred future. That's what Nehemiah is doing for them. He's letting them know that change is possible and that the change will bring them to a preferred future from shame and disgrace to no shame, no disgrace. From fear to freedom. So they say, come, let us rebuild. And they rebuild the wall. So we're going to read some of what that rebuilding process looked like. We're going to read chapter 3 together now. Now this is a chapter with a list of names, a whole lot of names. And if you're just reading, thinking of it as a chapter with names, your eyes are going to glaze over and you're going to start to snore, which is, you know, not a terrible thing. But you will miss out on what God wants to say to us through this chapter. This chapter is here for a reason. So as we're reading, pay attention to the big themes of the chapter. Try, pay attention to some of the phrases that keep refer keep repeating themselves. Ask yourself, what does this mean? How does this chapter hang together? What might God want to say to us through this chapter? Okay? So Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams, put its doors and bar, bolts and bars in place. 
Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joiah, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranath, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhaiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashabniah, made repairs next to him. Melchijah, son of Haram, and Hashab, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section, and the tower of the ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Noah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate, which is everyone's favorite place. The dung gate was repaired by Micaiah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim. He rebuilt it and put his doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kol, Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-drift in Bezur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Heshabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by their fellow Levites under Binuai, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabiah, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakus, repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashem made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Binuai, son of Henadad, repaired another section 
from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And Palal, son of Uzziah, worked out opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pediah, son of Parash, and the temple service living in a hill of Othel, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Othel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaleph, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Yeah. (laughs) So what do we make of that? You got this long, long list of names. Lots of detail. What does it mean? What can we draw from that? I'm going to try to draw four things from this, okay? The first thing that I want to talk to you about is this idea of consecration. This whole list starts with Eliashib, the high priest. Eliashib is the grandson of Joshua, who was the, the priest during the time of Zerubbabel, 140 years earlier. And the high priest was the most important religious leader in the city. His work, Eliashib's work, was, was uh, around the Sheep Gate, which is in the northeastern part of the city, which is where the temple is. What you'll notice is that the work begins in the northeast and goes kind of counterclockwise and ends where it started. So it starts at the sheep gate near the temple and ends at the sheep gate near the temple. And we're told that that area was dedicated. They dedicated the work that they'd begun. What we're, what, what we're supposed to glean from this, what we're supposed to get from this, I think, is that... This area, this area of the temple and sheep gate, the sheep gate, by the way, is the gate where the sheep would come in for the, would be brought in for the temple sacrifice. So it's a very, very, so that sheep gate was very important for the religious, the spiritual life of the city. So temple and sheep gate, beginning and ending there, Eliashib, the high priest, all of that together, the dedication, all that together is a way of saying that the whole rebuilding project The whole project was an act of worship. The whole project was a declaration of repentance. The whole project was a demonstration that the people were ready to return to God because they had strayed. They had strayed. They'd lost sight of God, but they were coming back. They were returning to God, and they were making that public. 
It's a bold statement about the people of Israel returning to their God. What this is saying to us is that our relationship with God must be central to all that we are and all that we do. Our relationship with God is central. God is central. So it's the most important place to start. It reminded them that God was central. It's the same thing with us. Colossians 3.17, one of our sort of church theme verses. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we do, everything, whether word or deed, we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we need to remind ourselves daily, often through the day even, that everything we do should be in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Consecration. We're called to a daily consecration of our life of our thoughts, of our words, of our actions, of our family life and relationships, of our work life, of our school life, of our careers, all that we're called to a daily consecration. We have to remember this, hold on to this. So consecration. Second thing, we see from this passage, from this chapter, is the idea of mobilization. Mobilization. What you see in this chapter is that there are over 50 people or groups that are mentioned. And there are people and groups that come from inside the city and from outside the city. There are people with different vocations, different skill mixes. All kinds of different people coming together on this one task. They're mobilized together for this task. You see men, you see women, you see priests, Levites, temple servants, gate guards. You see rulers, you see nobles. You see the unions and the guilds. That's what the perfume, perfume makers are. And the um, goldsmiths, they're examples of a couple of the unions, if you will, in the city, the guilds. They're coming together. You see people from from who actually live in the city, residents of the city working in this, but you also see people coming from the towns and villages in the surrounding area. You see people from Jericho, from Tekoa, from Gibeon, from Mizpah, from Zanoah, all of them outside Jerusalem. They're coming together. 50 groups of people are mentioned as being involved in a building. Each person group doing their part. Now imagine with me for a moment what it would have been like if instead of 50 groups of people, instead of a whole mobilization, only 20 groups got into the job, got into the work. Only 20 groups were mobilized. What might that have been like? Maybe they never would have finished the project. Maybe 
Who knows what happened? But see, they had a 140-year history of starting stuff and not finishing stuff. Because people would mobilize for a little bit, then they'd, then they'd stop, or they'd fight with one another, or different things happened. So, so the, you had three waves of exiles coming into Jerusalem over 140 years. And after 140 years, the city was still a mess. But finally, 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 they mobilized and they worked together. God is calling his people, God is calling his people to mobilize. And not to mobilize just for a day, but to stay, to stay on mission, to stay in the mission until the mission is accomplished, until the glory of God is revealed. So consecration and then mobilization. But before I get to mobilization, uh, uh, to the third point, there is one jarring note here. Verse 5. If you've got your Bible, look back at verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. What it says is that the men of Tekoa repaired the next section, but, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The men, the people worked, but their leaders didn't work. It doesn't say why exactly, but we have clues, I think. The Hebrew phrase literally says, did not bring their neck into the service of. They did not bring their neck into the service of. And this kind of implies that the reason the nobles didn't get involved was because they didn't want to put themselves under somebody else's authority. They didn't want to put themselves under somebody else's authority. It may mean that they, they resented the new leadership that had come into the city of Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, they weren't going to buy in because they weren't leading the show. I don't know how many critical projects have been compromised, have not been fulfilled because people are more interested in leading the charge themselves or getting their own way or getting the credit than they are in getting the job done, getting something good done. I don't know how many times something good has been stalled because people have too much ego. They're not willing to follow somebody else's lead. But it happens a lot. It happens a lot. It happens in our culture. It happens in our government. It happens in the church. It happens a lot.
And that's an error we all need to repent of. So consecration, mobilization, but also collaboration. The great thing about this chapter is that the nobles of Tekoa were an anomaly. Mostly everybody else threw themselves into it. People came together, the power of unity. You notice as, as we were reading through this text, how many times a phrase appeared next to them, adjoining them. It says that they came together. They worked next to one another. And they worked uh, in a way that was coordinated. They didn't just do their own thing. They gave up their independence and their control for the sake of a larger vision and purpose. They were willing to be under leadership. They were united under that leadership. But the leadership was really important too. The coordination of it was really important. What you have here in this chapter is 41 sections of construction. These 41 construction areas are going on simultaneously. Picture that. Each person, each group has a, has a Assigned section and assigned task. Some people work on gates. Some people work on walls, surround gates. They're all working together at the same time. Imagine the level of planning and coordination and leadership that took. The building project is, is uh, organized around the 10 gates of the city. The gates are important because those are the most vulnerable places when attack comes. So they have to be built strong and well but they're also the place that need to be able to open easily because that's where commerce goes in and out. The gates are important. The, leadership t- the leaders take account people's self-interest. They take account their passion. And that's a good thing. There's nothing unholy about understanding what people's self-interest is. Imagine if you're building, if, you're, if the wall is necessary to your security, you're going to really want the wall in front of your house to be really well made, you're not going to take shortcuts there. If your passion to see the temple protected, you really want this temple, temple to be protected, you're not going to take pe- shortcuts there. You're going to do everything necessary to make sure this part of the wall is going to be great. Right? We all have self-interest. We all have passions. Things that are really important to us. And we need to take that into account as we work together. Because you always work better, harder, more carefully when you really, really, really care about something, right? Amen? So they take that into account. So consecration, mobilization, collaboration, and cooperation. Jerusalem. What does that mean for us? We're not in Jerusalem. We're here in Worcester, 2016. What does that mean for us? It means that we need to go through the same kind of process that Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem went through, the area around Jerusalem went through. We start with a holy distress 
that comes from asking questions and paying attention. When you look at this neighborhood and look at the city of Worcester and the area around the region around it as a whole, what do you see? What are you willing to see? Are we willing to look with the eyes of God in the neighborhood and city that God has placed us in? Now, when I look at the city of Worcester, there's some things that immediately jump out in terms of big needs in the city. We have an opioid crisis. People are overdosing on a potent form of heroin and dying. And the city's taking heroic measures to try to stop people from dying, but but nonetheless, they get their shot of Narcan after they overdose, and they survive, and they're going back to it again, going back to the heroin the same day. There's There's a crisis. There is a crisis. And the factors behind that are profound and complex, but it's something, it's a real need in the city. We have gang violence. Many of you remember that this past summer, there were a series of shootings, a bunch of shootings between gangs in the city. And it was between young members in these gangs shooting one another because they felt like they were disrespected and they had to shoot one another to regain respect. How crazy is that? What's behind all that? There's a need. The city as a whole is doing relatively well in terms of the economy and so forth, but there are pockets of the city that have been left behind. They've been left behind. We need to figure out ways. One of the needs of cities is to figure out how to have job growth, job creation that extends to every neighborhood in the city, which means we have to figure out why people are having a hard time finding jobs, what kind of training they need, what kind of background, what kind of opportunity they need. You've been hearing about uh, the fact that Worcester has more refugees than any city in New England. And they're coming in out of unspeakable trauma, many of them. And they desperately need somebody who's come alongside them and, not provide, and provide not just physical needs to them, but a real welcome, an embracing of them as people, as individuals, as families. Worcester has a significant race problem. A significant race problem. There are racial tensions, racial injustices throughout the city. And there's a toxic political culture. People are fighting with one another instead of coming alongside one another to work together. You can see all those things, but there's some other things kind of underneath these as well. One of the things I did this last week is I read a bunch of blog posts about people's perceptions of the city, people's experiences of the city. I've read several hundred of them. And it was striking to me how many people have a negative view of this city. 
They talk about it's crime. They talk about it's dirty streets. They talk about the fact that there aren't things to do for young people. They talk about, um, you know, not a, not a significant culture or art or even music scene, which I think all of that's wrong. I think there's all kinds of stuff in the city, but they haven't. But because they think this is what the city is, they don't even bother looking for it. And kind of underneath all of that, there's this kind of idea that Worcester is second class. Worcester is... Wormtown, Worcester is, it's not Boston. And if it's not Boston, it can't be good. Right? Well, I spent several years living in Boston. And then I've spent over 35 years living in the city of Worcester. I'm happy to live in Worcester. I intend to die here. And until I die, I intend to live here. Because I think Worcester is a great place to be. But if people have a view of Worcester that's jaundiced, that's warped, that's, in some sense, um, distorted, I think. They think it's only a place where bad things happen. Then that means is they won't mobilize to bring something good. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right? What is it that you see? The good as well as the problem, the need. What are we willing to look for? What are we willing for God to show us? I think God wants us to be part of changing the perception of this city. Because the perception isn't the reality unless we allow it to be so. There's also an isolation in a city. There are people in the city of Worcester living on the east side who never go to the west side. People in the south who never go to the north. Literally, they never go. We divide about so many different things in this city. And what's true of the city as a, as a whole is also true of the church in the city. Churches don't talk to each other very often in real ways. There's an isolation mentality in a city that has to be broken. It has to be crossed. It has to be demolished. And there's also a scarcity mentality in a city. The idea, part of the reason that different groups and neighborhoods fight with one another is because they think there's only, there are only limited resources. It's as if there was one pie with eight slices. If you didn't get one of those eight slices, you weren't going to get any pie. People aren't used to thinking that if you run out of one pie, you can build another, you can bake another one. 
I can assure you that God can bake a whole lot of pies. He's not limited to one. We don't have to fight with one another about who gets a slice. We just bake another one. There's plenty of pie to go around if we're willing to bake. If we're willing to work together to bake rather than just fighting for what's right there, right in front of us. Lots of opportunity. Now, what we want to do as Journey Church is we want to build our church. We want to proclaim God's truth. We want to display God's goodness. We want to advance God's kingdom. We want to do all of that to God's glory, right? We want to do that. But that is not all that we want to do. We want not just to build our church. We can't just allow ourselves to build our church. We want to, we need to build the church in the city and region. If I were looking for a metaphor of the church in the Worcester area, I would say it's an estranged family. We know we're family, we're brothers and sisters, but we don't get along, we don't spend time with one. We are an estranged family. And estranged families break the heart of their fathers and mothers. They break the heart of our God. Many of you know about the one another passages in the scriptures. You know, forgive one another, love one another, pray for one another, carry one another's burdens, all that kind of stuff. There are all kinds of references in the New Testament, particularly to these one another passages, right? When we read those, we tend to think of them as applying just to our local church. But they're never meant to apply just to the local church. They're meant to apply to the church, to the people of God as a whole. It's not just love one another in your local church and let the other churches, you know, do whatever they do. You don't have to be concerned about them. It's love one another in the body of Christ. John 17, 22, 23. In John 17, Jesus prays a prayer. The whole chapter is a prayer, basically. And in, in this, uh, one of the sections of prayer, he's talking about not just the disciples, praying for the disciples, but for those, the generations of disciples, of followers of Jesus who come after. And he, and he prays. He prays that they would be brought to complete unity. He says... Also, he prays also, I pray that they may be one even as you and the Father, even as, as the Father and I are one. He prays that, uh, that this would be so for a very specific reason. He says that when the, fa- when, when the church comes together in unity, then the world will know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father loves the world just as he loves the the son. By implication, what Jesus is saying is the biggest obstacle to the world coming to know the love of the Father, coming to see the love of the Father, is the disunity, the estrangement of the church. Because we are an estranged family, we're not in complete unity with one another, the world does not see 
does not understand, does not experience the fact that the Father loves them. That the Father sent the Son, that the Father loves them. They don't see that. We are the problem. We, collectively, the church, is the problem. We compare, we compete, we criticize, we condemn one another over small things. Small things. We, uh, we don't reach out. We're not intentional. We are an estranged family. And we grieve the heart of God in our estrangement and prevent the world from coming to see the heart of God for themselves. So we need to come together as the church and not just as our local little church. So we focus on building our church, but we also focus on building the whole church, being part of the whole church and building the whole church. And we focus not just on the church, but on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. The kingdom of God existed before the church. The kingdom of God is bigger. God has a global cosmic purpose. The church is part of that purpose, but a part. What, we, what it means for us to uh, be part of God's kingdom rule and to extend God's kingdom purposes is that we enter into the world on mission. We seek to bring good in the Father's name. We let our light so shine that they may see our good deeds and give glory to God our Father. Right? Now, this means partnerships with one another in the church, and it means partnerships between the church as a whole and other stakeholders. It means partnerships. Here's what I see going on in the city, going on in the churches in the city and in the city as a whole. You've got all kinds of people, groups, churches, civic organizations doing good stuff. Somebody's doing good stuff over here. 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 Over here. Over here. Good stuff popping up all around. But because they're doing it by themselves, it's not coordinated. It's good stuff happening without any connection. And what that means is there are all kinds of gaps, all kinds of holes. All kinds of Cracks where people are falling through. What we're doing is we're building sections of wall rather than a wall. That means that the wall is only partially built at its best, and a partially built wall is no wall at all. It doesn't do the job. We've got to figure out how to build together in coordination so there aren't holes, there aren't gaps, there aren't people left behind.
We got to see the big picture and be willing to put aside our smaller agendas for the larger agenda and for the larger glory of God and a larger good of people throughout the city and region. This past summer here in the city of Worcester, there are these community dialogues on race. There, the Justice Department was invited to come in by the mayor, Mayor Petty, and city manager, Ed Augustus. They were invited to come into the city, and they conducted seven community dialogues on race. At the first dialogue, um, there were people from all over. We, we met at YWCA. There's a, the dialogue place. And what struck me, what really struck me, struck a number of us was that reference was made to various groups who were involved in trying to understand and resolve this problem of race in the city, but the church wasn't mentioned, wasn't even mentioned. It was as if the church did not exist. It was not seen, the church was not seen as a player in any way in, in resolving, in, in trying to help uh, bring healing to this problem, reconciliation, real reconciliation. Why? It's because the church has been busy doing its own thing. We're running our own programs. We are, uh, we're running our programs and ministries and outreaches. And we haven't consistently gone to others in the city and said, we're so glad, so grateful for the work you're doing. How can we help you? How can we partner with you? We haven't done that consistently. And so nobody knows what we're doing. And what we're doing has been marginalized in its effect. We've got to be people who are willing to partner with others. Even when we don't believe all the same things. If we care about the same things, we ought to be willing to partner with one another. We do it without losing our own identity. But we've got to be willing to partner. Partner with other churches, partner with other civic stakeholders. People who care about the city. So Jerusalem gets destroyed in 586 B.C., But 140 years later, Nehemiah is living the good life in Susa, the capital of Persia. He's a trusted advisor of the king and he has all the perks that come with proximity to power. And then one day, Hanani, one of his relatives, comes into this city. He comes from Jerusalem into Susa. And Nehemiah asks him, what's going on in Jerusalem? And, And Hanani tells him, Things are bad. People are discouraged. The walls are broken down. The city's vulnerable. We're in disgrace. It's bad. We're at the mercy of our enemies. It's bad. And Nehemiah hears the news and it just wrecks him. He can't let it go. He starts mourning and weeping and fasting and praying. And he does this for four months. Four months. And during those four months, God begins to birth something new in him. God births the call and the mission in Nehemiah. 
Go to Jerusalem, mobilize the people to rebuild the walls. So it causes Nehemiah to leave everything he knows, to let go of all the privileges and comfort and security that he's earned, to follow a call from God to go to a place that he's never been to before, a place he's never seen, to rebuild a city he's never seen. And Nehemiah goes on his journey, and he arrives in the city, and it's just as it was described to him. It's destroyed. Rubble and shambles. Piles of rubble on the streets. There are people who live in this devastated, destroyed city. And that's the only city they know. They were born in this city as it was, and they're still in this city as it is. The only city they've seen, this Jerusalem. It's been like this for 140 years. And the people of Jerusalem have no real sense of what Jerusalem had been in its glory days. They have no vision or hope for what it could be They have no motivation as a result from working to make it better. They just think this is the way things are. This is the way they will always be. They've resigned themselves to living in this broken, shattered, rubble-strewed, disgraced city, second-class city. The wall of the city is broken down, and this broken-down wall is a problem. It's a very real problem. It, can't, it means that there's nothing that can protect Jerusalem's inhabitants. So the city is vulnerable to marauding raiders, to rogue thugs, to, to all those with the power and will to prey on the weak and the defenseless. It's a problem. But the broken down wall is not merely a problem. It's also a symbol and a symptom of a much larger problem. The real problem is that they've allowed their vision of God and his kingdom to become clouded and small. The real problem is that they've forgotten who they are and to whom they belong. The real problem is that they've given up their bonds of community, given into their own selfishness and narrow self-interest. The real problem is that they have lost hope of a better future for their lives and for their city. They've lost all the things that bring about fullness and vitality and renewal. And so the wall of Jerusalem must be rebuilt for the sake of the city and its people. It's absolutely necessary for the city to know safety and security. The problem, the, the, the presenting problem, if you will, has to be addressed. But that's not all that needs to take place. Ultimately, the wall project is the means to build faith again in in God and trust and connection with one another. 
The completed wall is a symbol both to the people of Israel and to the surrounding nations that the God of Israel is a great and awesome and good God. He's a good God. God who's worthy of their faith and trust and worship. What would it be like if we became part of a movement of God's people They came together to bless our city in the name of Jesus. What if we, the church in the city, the churches united in the city, came together to make the invisible God visible? The invisible God visible through the way we together honor Jesus and love and serve our city and community. Would it be worth it to us if one day the city of Worcester looked around, looked around all the good things being done in the city, throughout the city, all the needs being met, all the hopes and dreams being birthed and being fulfilled, all the beauty being created, all the creativity being unleashed. What would it be like if they looked at all that and said, this city is blessed. Surely the Lord lives in this city. Let us run to know this Lord. Let's run. When that happens, wouldn't it be worth all the fasting and praying and thinking and planning, all the energy, time, all the money and sacrifice we've invested as the church in the city? Wouldn't it be worth it? This is no pipe dream. It's not a delusion. God is willing to do this if we're willing to rise up and rebuild together. So let's rise up and rebuild. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are, in fact, the God of this city. We do not cede even an inch of it to the devil. It belongs to you. We thank you that you are at work in our midst. We thank you that you have brought us together. We thank you that you are the source of new life and abundant life for all. And we ask, Lord, that you would hold before us your character, that you would help us see you as you are, to see what you're doing, to see our city through your perspective, your lens, and to act according to your purpose. We pray, Lord, that just as a simple idea four years ago unleashed a movement among students throughout the city, that this idea that our God cares for the city would unleash your church to bring about your great good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.